let's, um, let's look at the book of Revelation first. Uh, we're, we're starting our reading through the book of Revelation this Shabbat. Uh, you may have noticed that we left off with Hebrews, and then we jumped over James, Peter, uh, Jude, and uh, some of those books in there. Do you remember why? It's because originally those books, James, Peter, etc., were before the, the letters of Paul in the New Testament canon. And it was Jerome in the late 300s that pulled a switcheroo and put Paul in front of what they would, gener- they would call the general or Catholic epistles of James, Peter, John, and, and, and Jude. So uh, we, we did a talk about that in the Lama talk, so I'm not going to get into that. So that's why we're jumping right to Revelation here. And I'll give you an overview of this book, some of the context, and then we're going to look at some areas in which uh, we see this vision of Yeshua that isn't always the way the pop Jesus is represented. There's some, there's some, there's some zinger quotes in there from him. It's, it's scary stuff, actually. So uh, let's, let's look at that together. In uh, verse 1, this is how it reads. The book... Of the revelation of the beast. Try again. The book of the revelation of mystery Babylon. Wrong. What does it say? The book of the revelation of Yeshua, the Messiah. That's how this book opens. This sets the whole context for the book. So we learn this book isn't primarily about the bad guys. You do have a cast of real villains in the book of Revelation. There's the dragon, there's the beast, there's the, there's the false prophet, there's, there's mystery Babylon. And of course it portrays these, these figures and these groups of people in, uh, in symbolic language. And it's very easy to get hung up on the symbolism and to say, who could that be? Who might this be? And it's really important to remember that those are important questions. But this book, above all, is about Yeshua. So if, we, if, if our primary focus in the book of Revelation is on the villains, we're missing the point of the book. The point of this book is who comes back in the end. He deals with the bad guys in an instant and it's over. And then he's the one that we are going to be spending a very long period of quality time with. We're currently betrothed to him, and he's coming back for us for the wedding. That's the, that's the main point of this book. Um, Yeshua in his glory is the focus. Our exalted rabbi is the main objective. And I hope that as we study this book, we can just get a vision of Yeshua, not only as he was, as a humble Galilean peasant and an itinerant rabbi who... Uh, you know, wasn't living too high on the proverbial hog. The, the main point of this book is to see Yeshua where he is today. Where he has been for the last uh, almost two, two millennia since his ascension. And uh, also, of course, to catch a vision of what he's going to look like at his glorious return. Uh, here's, here's something cool. In verse 3, this, this gives us the context of the book. This is a classic synagogue language. Blessed is he who reads, and those who hear the words of the prophecy, and heed the things which are written in it. So you see, this book was designed to be read in a congregational context publicly. And then, of course, the, uh, the congregation would be listening. So... Uh, that, that probably reflects the Jewish tradition of after you have the readers go up to the bima, you have your seven readers make aliyah to the bima, um, you then have, you have a blessing spoken for the readers. Misha Berach, it's called in Hebrew. Uh, you know, may he who blessed her ancestors also bless you, you who have come up to read uh, from, from the, the Torah. So here it pronounces a blessing for the reader of the book of Revelation in, 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 the, in that context. In uh, chapter 1, verse 9, we, we get the geographical location from whence this, this uh, letter originated. It's written by Yochanan, one of Yeshua's own emissaries. He was in the inner circle of the inner circle of, of, of our, our Master. Um, 
You remember David and his giborim, his mighty men, his 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 fighters, his his here the 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 heroic company that surrounded him and then accompanied him when he uh, ascended to the throne of Israel. And even in David's mighty men, he had an outer circle and then he had inner circles. You read about that, for instance, in Chronicles. I love reading about those guys. They were fierce and they were so loyal. And it says, um, so such and such a man, you know, he went into a pit and he killed a lion on a snowy day. And such and such a man tackled. The, the, uh, the giant from Egypt and killed him with his own spear but, but he didn't make it to the three David had these three that were like his inner inner circle and uh, Yochanan was one of the three guys who were in Yeshua Ben David's inner inner circle we read the geographical location also he was on an island called Patmos because of God's word and the testimony of Yeshua he was imprisoned he was the only one of Yeshua's emissaries that did not die prematurely in a bloody death take note of that when Yeshua calls men and sends them they do not always live to a ripe old age they hit a nerve sometimes they get killed sometimes they are regarded as enemies of the state sometimes they cause riots and Yochanan, uh, tradition records, they actually did try and kill him. They, uh, they heated a cauldron of, boiling oil, uh, of oil to boiling point, and then they dropped him in. They were going to burn him to death, and he just wouldn't burn. It was a supernatural rescue. He survived that incident, but he's still imprisoned as an, old, as an older man, probably the last of Yeshua's circle. Um, he, he, he's on this island. Patmos was uh, an island where Roman prisoners, who were very dangerous, were imprisoned. Yochanan was regarded as very dangerous. Um, how many of you have been to Alcatraz, outside San Francisco? Okay, I've been to Alcatraz also. Patmos was kind of like Alcatraz. It's like we do not want these guys to get away, so we're going to pack them off to an island and just keep them there where they can't escape and where they can't cause any more trouble. All right? That's the idea of, of Patmos. Yeah. So hopefully that gives us the context of the vision that, um, that the author of this extended letter gives. And I'll give you I'll give you a couple elements that are very Jewish in their nature in the book of Revelation. Uh, rabbis have actually called the book of Revelation a stolen book. They say that there's almost nothing original in this book. It's all quotations from the Tanakh. It's all um, borrowing the symbolism of the Hebrew Bible. Well, that makes sense. The guy who wrote it was a Jew. The guy who wrote it spoke Hebrew as his mother tongue. The guy who wrote it was steeped in the Tanakh. It kind of makes sense. that, And of course, the spirit that animated the men who wrote the Hebrew Bible was the same spirit that gave John this vision. So it kind of makes sense. It's just interesting that even Orthodox Jewish rabbis are, are able to take... To, they're able to notice that this is a thoroughly Jewish document. This is like an extension of the writings of the prophets of Israel. And that is a correct observation. In 1 verse 10, uh, Yochanan's on the island, he's in the Ruach, the Spirit, and he hears a loud voice behind him like the sound of a trumpet, which of course would be a shofar. So when you hear the shofar, as a disciple of Yeshua, think there's something about the sound of the shofar that is an echo of Yeshua's voice. This should remind me of the voice of our Master in His glory. Uh, we also read in one thirteen, uh, Yeshua is he's in the midst of seven golden lampstands, candelabra. What's the Hebrew word for a candelabrum? <clears throat> menorah. Everybody say menorah. Okay, uh, where do we read about the menorah? In the Torah. It's it's this, it's symbolism directly from the Torah. So, if we don't understand the lessons of the menorah, we won't be able to understand this vision. And um, Yeshua goes on in verse 20 to point out the, uh, the seven golden lampstands. They're the seven uh, ecclesias, congregations. So there's something about the menorah that pictures a new covenant community of believers in Yeshua. So I think you could even infer from this that if you wanted to choose a symbol of faith in Yeshua, it should be the menorah. 
the, the cross actually did not become a symbol excuse me, of early Christianity um, until like the two and three hundreds. So, you know, you, I think you could, you, could, you could make a very strong case here to say that the menorah is the original biblical symbol of Christianity, of the Christian church, if we, if we want to use those terms. Wouldn't that be revolutionary? What if believers really connected to that and started wearing menorahs? What if, what if, uh, what if churches started putting big menorahs on their roofs or in front of them? You know what people would say? Some people would say, that's replacement theology. The menorah is the symbol of Israel. How can you, how can you misappropriate the menorah to yourself? But notice here very clearly that Yeshua says these mixed congregations of Jewish and non-Jewish believers in Him, in the diaspora, the menorah is a symbol of these congregations. So menorah is a symbol of Israel. Menorah is the symbol of the ecclesia. Could there be a correlation there? I think so. Um, <clears throat> just jump ahead to uh, chapter 2 with me for a second. I want to point out one Hebrew insight for you. Uh, this is actually more from the Greek text with an underlying Hebrew um, idea. In uh, Revelation 2 verse 9, it's, he says, I know the blasphemy by those who say they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Okay, synagogue is the Greek word there, right? And it's just carried over into English as synagogue. Now, did you know that there's another place where synagogue is used where it's not translated as synagogue? There it's translated as assembly. If you, uh, if you look at the epistle of James, the brother of Yeshua, Yaakov, in uh, James chapter 2, verse 2, it says... If a man comes into your assembly, that's the English translation and the New American Standard, and probably most of your translations. The Greek word there is synagogue. Oh, get that. James says, addressing New Covenant believers, communities of Yeshua's disciples, if a man comes into your synagogue with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, okay? So the meeting places of the early believers, according to the New Testament, were called synagogues. But they translate that as assembly because I think there's, there's, a, you know, there's been some history in the last 2,000 years. There has been a concerted attempt to absolutely divorce Christianity from its Jewish roots and from understanding the Jewish matrix from whence it emerged. And that's, as you know, has produced anti-Semitism. It's produced a lot of bad theology. And it has... Um, I think it's cut off believers from their inheritance also in the covenants of God, which is something Paul wrote about in Romans uh, uh, and uh, Ephesians chapter 2, for instance. So anyway, it's interesting that when it's, when it's referring to Christians, that word is translated as assembly. When it's referring to Jews in the context of a synagogue of Satan, then they just leave it as synagogue. Can you, can you hear the bias there? Can you hear the inconsistency? It's like, yeah, when it's a reference to like something satanic, we'll translate we'll just leave that as synagogue. But when it's a when it's a reference to believers, we'll translate it assembly. Ouch. Anyway, so you know, we, we you're very correct in saying that you go to synagogue on Saturday morning. We meet in a gymnasium in a Baptist church. But this is our synagogue. So welcome to our synagogue. You know, we we tell well, we tell Tirza when we get up on Shabbat morning, Tirza, we're going to synagogue this morning. It's a biblical thing. It's a biblical term. Yeah. Um, here, let's, 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 let's uh, look at another broader element here. Uh, John wrote in 1 John that one of the hallmarks of the spirit of the Antichrist, anti-Messiah, is that it denies that Yeshua came in the flesh. Uh, this term, in the flesh, as you know, it means the physical side. It means the, the physical nature, physical dimensions. So the spirit of anti-Messiah will avoid the fact that Yeshua came in the flesh, that he was a physical human being. It doesn't like to go there. Here's a question. Who was Yeshua on a physical side? Who was he in the flesh? He was obviously, he was Jewish. Um, you know, what's that? Yeah, he, he was a rabbi. He, he, did, he did the Torah, you know, on a physical level in terms of his lifestyle, what he did on a daily basis. Um, we're all very familiar with that. And so some of us have clued into this fact that we've, we've been missing a large part of 
what we could know of Yeshua and have a broader understanding of Him. So, you know, we're part of a whole movement of people who are coming back to understanding Yeshua in His Jewish context, to saying, who was He in the flesh? What did He do on a physical level in terms of His lifestyle? How He applied the Torah, etc. And we love that. I suggest to you, though, that we may actually be in danger of going too far and swinging to the other side of the pendulum. It's too easy to only think of Yeshua in terms of natural parameters, in terms of who He was in the flesh as a Jew, as a human being like us. Uh, And sometimes, for me personally, I tend to forget that He is also the Son of Elohim. That He is God come in the flesh. That He is altogether glorious. That like when he appears in the room, people like drop dead, as it were. They fall on their faces. Like overwhelming. I, I don't think we can even conceive of it. The, the weight of his presence if he were to walk into the room. All these questions about the deity of Yeshua. I think that happens when we are not in touch with the weight of his presence. When we have not been floored by his glory. That's my personal opinion. Um, so that's why I love the book of Revelation. This is not a vision of Yeshua, the Galilean Jewish peasant, an itinerant rabbi. This is a vision of the glorified Son of God. And He is all of these things that we've just discussed. He is, he is a Chad, He's one. Uh, but that's something that we're going to be keying in here. Um, Yeshua dispatches a series of letters to congregations in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, uh, through His emissary Yochanan here. And I just, I'm going to point out a couple things that don't get a lot of airtime. It's the side to Yeshua that, I don't know, maybe would make him less popular. It's the side to him that maybe doesn't fit some people's theology. If, if some people have a theology of Yeshua that he's kind of like the original Santa Claus, who's just a big, jolly guy, and he flies around and gives you whatever you want, and is always saying ho, 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 and stuff like that. You know what, some people, for some people, that's their vision of Jesus. He's just really nice. He would never cross you. He's all positive, entirely positive, all positive emotion. You know what? The, the, the vision of the Mashiach that's communicated in this book is actually rather terrifying. There's a side of Yeshua that's, uh, he's a pretty tough dude. So let, let's, let's have a look at that. And uh, you'll notice here that this isn't just him talking with people who are in absolute outright rebellion to him or people that aren't believers. He, he's writing these letters to believers. Um, in, um, I'll point out a couple trends that stand out to me. In his, his uh, first letter to his congregation in Ephesus, in uh, verse 2, he says, I know your deeds... So did you notice the first thing he said? You know, often in, our, in um, the religious world today, we'll say, well, you know, God knows my heart. We'll say, you know what, I'm being a little sloppy in this area of my life. You know, I'm kind of ignoring this part of the Bible. I'm not doing these mitzvot, but God knows my heart. And we use that as an excuse. And you'll, you'll notice here that Yeshua doesn't say, I know your heart. He says, I know what you're doing. I'm looking at your actions. So the first thing we can learn here is our actions matter to the Master. He looks at what we're doing. And not just as individuals, He looks at what we're doing as a community. This is the, this is the basis on which He relates to His people in Ephesus. These are some of the first words out of His mouth. In His letter in uh, 2.19 to His congregation in Thyatira, He has this to say again, I know your deeds. And a couple other things. And then he says, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. So we learn that Yeshua looks at a congregation and he says, what are they doing? You know, they're doing greater things now than they were then. He says, their actions are greater now than they were. What could that be in reference to? It doesn't actually say. I I assume that would have to do with accomplishing the mission that Yeshua gave his people. I assume it would have to be with personal righteousness, I assume that would also have to do with applying God's mitzvot, His commandments. Um, I assume that it would encompass all of those things. But that's something to take note of. And it's, it's hard. I, I admit, it's really hard to think in these terms because I usually think in terms of my personal relationship with the Master. You know, Of course, Yeshua looks at me as an individual and what I'm doing. But 
th- this is an idea, idea that's coming and breaking into my worldview right now. Yeshua looks at us as a community. And he, he talks to us as a community. Wow. In um, Revelation 2.26, he says, um, He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end. And then he gives a great promise. But notice that. He talks about keeping his deeds until the end. So Yeshua has deeds. He has a set of actions that he has, that he has given to the Messianic community. And what's our job according to this verse? To keep them until the end. So hold on to what he's given us to do. Persevere in it. Keep his deeds. That's the first thing that jumps out. Um, the, the second thing that doesn't get, a, I, I think, much airtime is Yeshua. He goes on um, to say, he actually has stuff against congregations. And this is scary. Because this isn't even a century after Yeshua's ascension. Like, these communities are not very old. They were founded by the original apostles themselves. And Yeshua's already coming and saying, Guys, I have this against you. I've got a problem with you in this area. And we're going to address this. Wow, hey? I just... It makes me think, Yeshua actually talks to us in those terms? He actually thinks, you know, he actually thinks, yes, I look at this congregation, and I have this against this congregation. I mean, okay, seriously, at first, okay, if you were just to hear that, it would be really easy to be like, that sounds like legalism to me. That sounds really negative. What about justification by faith? What happened to justification by faith? But you know what? This is Yeshua talking. So we have to assume that he's right, and that this is actually... This is how he sometimes communicates with his people. Um, in 2 verse 4, to Ephesus, he says, uh, This is what I have against you. You've left your first love. And so we, hear, we don't hear here a legalistic savior. We don't hear a cold son of God who likes to nitpick and cut people down. What we hear here is a passionate bridegroom. We hear a lover saying, I was your first love, and you've begun to drift from me. So we hear he's calling his people back to himself. Yeah. Um, this is a fight, probably in every marriage. Uh, I, I know, you know, Genevieve and I have been married for almost four years, and I've been learning about that. I, I, I can think of, you know, times when I would just, I would, um, I, you know, let's say when we were courting, and I would pursue Genevieve, and I would... I would send her pictures in the mail and I would write her love poetry and, and songs and I'd sing them to her over the telephone and, and we got married and I wanted to always hold hands with Genevieve. I think sometimes it was probably almost too much for her because I was just like, I've been waiting for you for all these years and I finally found you and I just, I can't get enough of you. I never, I never want to be out of your sight. I just, I always want to hold onto your hand. I always want to feel that contact with you. You know, so I, I, when I, when I hear the term first love, I think of my first love with my wife. And uh, I think many of us have had a honeymoon phase like that with the master. And what he's saying is, that was your first love. Don't lose your first love. Keep your, keep your love for him fervent. Maintain a strong devotion to him. May it never be that you could ever get enough of Yeshua in his presence. That's the I, that, that's 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 the heart cry that I that I hear from the master when he talks about this. And in the next verse, he says, "Repent." It's kind of scary when Yeshua himself says, "Repent, guys." And of course, you know, that, that's, I don't know, that word has some baggage for some people. It's more of a religious term. In Hebrew, it simply means, turn around. Turn around. It's like, you're going this direction, but you shouldn't be going in this direction. So, do a 180. Do a U-turn. Turn around. He's like, you're losing your first love, so come back to your first love. That's the idea there. Repent. The, did, did you notice, like, this is Yeshua himself speaking through his prophet. I just wonder, what are Yeshua's prophets going to sound like as he raises up men and women who speak his word in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Could it be that he will be addressing communities and saying, guys, you have a problem in this area. I have this against you. You need to pull a 180 when it comes to what you're doing with this. Like, I, I, I get the impression that when the spirit of prophecy 
communicates to a congregation, he's going to have some tough words sometimes. It's not all going to be a cakewalk and positive thinking and saying nice truisms. He's going to really, he really engages. So let's remember that. Let's prepare as a community for times when Yeshua is going to speak to us. Um, he also says in 2.14, uh, he has something against his people in Pergamum. He says, um, uh, oh, sorry. He says, I have a few things against you. So he has a list here. He has a list of things against his people in Pergamum. And wh- 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 why is this? Is it because Yeshua is about having a righteous checklist and you need to make sure you check off all the boxes and be a, the best goody-goody that you can be? No! If you read on, he says, there are people who are seducing you. There's false teaching coming in. They're taking, they're taking people away from the God of Israel. They're taking people away from Yeshua. And so he's really, he's really digging in here on this one. Um, he talks about people who hold false teaching. All right, So Yeshua really doesn't like false teaching. Like incorrect theology, doctrine that is off base, Yeshua does not like that. He says, I have this against you. Uh, I'm not sure if you've noticed, but I, I'm passionate about theology. I care about right doctrine. Um, I'll often I'll say, okay, this is what the Bible says. This is what pop theology says. Does this line up? And you know, I don't just, I don't just target, quote, the church either. I, I hit the Messianic community pretty hard. I say, okay, this is a trend in the Messianic community. This is something that Messianic Judaism teaches, you know, uh, a lot of Messianic Judaism. But does it factor in all the verses? And so we see here, this is something Yeshua cares about too. Um, and so should, so should we. As, as students of his word. And then in verse 16 again, he says, Guys, repent! Or else. He gives an or else. Yikes. Okay, um, Yeshua in these letters, just in chapter 2, he gives three warnings. So um, he says, Guys, I have this against you. Repent. You need to turn around. You need to change. Or, this is going to happen. And then he gives a warning. Let's, let's look at the three warnings in this passage. In uh, Revelation 2 verse 5, he says, Or else, if you don't repent and do the deeds you did at first, I'm coming to you, and I will remove your menorah out of its place, unless you repent. That, that is probably what you would call an existential warning. What he's saying is, if you do not change in this area, I am personally removing you from your existence as a congregation. I will disband you. You will no longer have a light in your city. Isn't that terrifying? That he says that to his people? Wow. He, uh, he says in 2 verse 16, he says, Repent or else. I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them, referring to the false teachers, with the sword of my mouth. What's the sword of his mouth? The word of God. That is right. Yeshua is saying, if you don't deal with these false teachers and disassociate yourself from the ideas they're promulgating, I am going to personally come and I am going to deal with them with my word. Actually, that's a good thing. It's good when Yeshua comes and deals with false teachers with, with, the, with the truth of his word. But you'll notice that he he phrases that in combat terms. Making war. So did you notice something here? Bible preaching is combat. Teaching the word of God is warfare. I I, I feel that sometimes. Like after I preach, I'll be like, oh. Like I'll just feel like I just came through a big battle. I'll, I'll feel like... Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to describe that too much, but I, 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 I think I kind of feel that sometimes. Um, in 2.23, in reference to uh, Jezebel, who is a, a pseudo-prophetess, he says, I gave her time to repent in verse 21. It's kind of nice of him. I gave her time to repent. She doesn't want to repent. So look, in verse 22, I'm going to throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds, and I'm going to kill her children with pestilence. Wow. Isn't that terrifying? I'm going, to, I'm going to make her sick, I'm going to throw those who follow her into great tribulation, and I'm going to kill her children. This is Yeshua talking. Wow. 
So we hear here that the Son of God who isn't just humble and so gentle. We hear here the Son of God who has a warrior side to Him. We hear here the Son of God who is fierce in supporting righteousness and being vocal for truth and uh, who only has a certain degree of tolerance for sin before He says, Okay, guys, I'm stepping in now and it ain't going to be pretty. Um, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, we, uh, we read, um, <clears throat> this is like the, kind of the second intro to the book. He says, I, Yochanan, your brother and fellow partaker in three things that are in Yeshua. What are those three things? Tribulation. That means trouble, eh? Have any of us ever experienced trouble in our lives? Yeah. Oh, not, not Sharon. Wayne, Wayne takes really good care of Sharon. She's never... That's nice. And, um, <laughs> and, and kingdom and perseverance which are in Yeshua. I, I personally, I like the kingdom part. I like the idea of being a member of the, the kingdom of God that is coming and will be a global theocracy. It's just nice to know that you're on the winning side. It's nice to know that there are major perks. You know, there are a lot of perks in being in the kingdom of God. You could, you could list them all. Brrr. Oh man, it's, it's great. It's nice having authority in Yeshua's name to deal with demons, to see healing. Um, I, I really like that. There, there's a glory to the kingdom of God. But then he's, there's also a flip side to it. It isn't just the kingdom when we're in Yeshua. When we live life in the parameters of discipleship to Yeshua, we will also encounter tribulation. And we will have to persevere. Ouch! There are going to be times when it's just going to be really tough. There are going to be times when you just got to stick it out. And you just don't know if you can go for another day. And John says, I'm in with you on that. I'm experiencing that too. You'll notice here, it doesn't, say, it doesn't talk about the tribulation and perseverance that are in sin. Or in being stupid. Okay? Let's, say you, uh, let's say you used to be an alcoholic and you have a relapse and you go to the bar and you just get a hammered. And the next morning you are like miserable and you have the worst hangover of your life. You can't say, yes, I'm experiencing the tribulation that is in Jesus right now. I just have to persevere. No! That's the tribulation that's in being stupid. That's the perseverance that you have to do because you've sinned, okay? So he's not talking about that. It's important to know there is a difference. Just because you're having trouble or you're having to persevere, it might not be because you're following Yeshua. It might just be because you're being dumb or you're being stubborn. You're being like, I don't know. We've all seen kids. But, you know, I think many or all of you have parented children. Your kids sometimes, they'll do something, they'll disobey, right? They'll dig in their heels and they'll be defiant. And there's a tribulation that comes after that. That's not the tribulation that's in Jesus. That's a different one, alright? That he's talking about. So we'll, we'll take note of that there. Um, Yeshua, in these letters, we kind, of, we kind of just looked at the tough side of Yeshua. We looked at the warrior heart that he has against those who would seduce his bride from him or distract His people from a devotion to Him and the first love that they have with Him as, as their, their passionate bridegroom. Uh, there's another side to Yeshua that we definitely see coming out in these letters. Um, he's very encouraging in these letters. He's actually very tender with His people also. I'll, I'll give you a couple examples of that. Um, it's nice how at the beginning He says, I know. We, we looked in verse... Uh, Revelation 2.2 2, in his, uh, his words to his people in Ephesus. He says, I know your deeds. I know what you're doing. And then he also he acknowledges their toil. He says, I know you're working hard for me. And your perseverance. You guys, it is tough. And you're sticking it out. And I see that. And that you can't tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they're not. And found them to be false. So he says, guys, you're doing some stuff right. Good job. I see that you're intolerant of evil men. I see that you're testing apostles and you're, you're figuring out the guys who aren't real. So, that I, you know, as we look through these letters, we can see this. Yeshua starts generally with some very encouraging and affirmative statements. In the middle of the letter, he lays into it if he has issues and he has to confront stuff. And then, did you notice how these letters end also? He gives... He gives a promise. He gives encouragement. And actually, this is, this is a classic Jewish custom. Um, in, in the Jewish, in synagogue and in the Jewish tradition, let's say you finish a book that ends on a, like a negative note. 
you, you could call it a low note. Uh, let's, let's say, for instance, the book of, uh, a book of uh, Isaiah or Zechariah. They end on, like, they end on a low note. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll give you an example from, from Isaiah here. Isaiah, the last verse says, um, their worm won't die and their fire won't be quenched and there'll be an abhorrence to all mankind. Amen. That's how the book ends. So in, in synagogue, you don't actually end with that verse. They read that, uh, we read that verse, and then we go back and we read the second last verse, because it's a more positive one, and we like to end on a high note. Um, talks about how in the future, Shabbat and Rosh Chodesh, Sabbath and New Moon are going to be global days of worship. So that's, that's the verse you end on. Same with the book of Malachi. Um, the book of Malachi, the last verse says... Um, So that I won't come and smite the land with a curse. End of, end of book. So then it, it goes back and it repeats a, a promise from the book of Malachi. So Yeshua, in um, classic form, in these letters, he doesn't end on a low note. He ends with encouragement. He ends with a promise. And actually, um, in any kind of interpersonal communication, if you ever have to deal with a problem in a relationship with someone, if, you, uh, if you're in conflict resolution, take, take, take a lesson from Yeshua here. This is excellent the way he's doing this. And this is, this is how we should do it too. You don't just sit down with someone and lay into them. You don't sit down with someone and just be like, Bleh! and like list all of your problems that you have with that person, right? You begin by affirming your relationship. You say, you know, I appreciate the relationship that we have with you. This is the big picture. This is how I see you. And you, you, you affirm the security of your relationship with that person. Yeshua does this very clearly. And then if you have issues, then you work through those issues and you don't leave it there. You leave on an encouraging note. You leave, you leave with something positive. You, you have resolution with a, with a promise or something like that. So, you know, we all, we, we're all human beings and we all deal, deal with other human beings, which means we deal with messes occasionally, some of us more than others. Uh, just read through Yeshua's letters sometimes and take some, take some notes from the Master. Yeah. Here, here are a couple more examples of his... Uh, just, just like his love that comes through these, in these letters. In Revelation 2 verse 9 he says... To his people in Smyrna, he says, I know, I know your tribulation and your poverty. So on a physical level, these people were struggling financially. They had, prop, they had property that was confiscated. Um, they were, they were, it was really tough for them. And he says, guys, I know. And uh, the, the, Hebrew, the Hebrew concept there for know, it does not mean I acknowledge from a distance or I know about. It means I'm experiencing it with you. You remember when Israel... Am Yisrael was down in Egypt and it says the taskmasters were brutal and Israel was in pain and they cried out to Yahweh and it says he saw them and he heard them and he knew. It's, it's, the, same, it's the same language here. So you know when Yeshua's people even today when they go through tribulation when they are being brutalized when um, they are being when horrible things are being done to them, let's say in, North, in, in Africa, North Africa, by Islamic militants, Yeshua doesn't just know about them, He's there. He's experiencing that with Him. So He says, I know your tribulation, I know your poverty. Uh, if you ever go through financial struggles, if you're having problems with your health, whatever, just take that to heart. Yeshua's there. He knows on a very experiential level. He's, he's going through it with you. In um, 2 verse 13, to his people in Pergamum, he says, I know where you dwell. So I, I know where you guys are situated, where Satan's throne is. So there was a, this is actually a literal, this is a literal, I don't know if you know the history of this. I'm not going to get into too many, much detail. But there was a literal throne in the pagan temple there that was called Satan's throne. And it was like a, a demonic stronghold of the highest order. And Yeshua says, I know where you guys are. I don't know. Have any of you gone through a tough time? Let's say you're really hurting and you're really struggling. Just to know that you haven't been forgotten by God. Just to know that He knows about you. Never mind that He feels it with you or He's experiencing it as He goes. Whatever. Just to know that he, he knows about you. That can make all the difference in the world. And just remember that. He does. Kind of cool too. He knows about us here in Prince Albert. He knows about our situation here. I like that. 
I, I, I want to be in the know with Yeshua more. You know, when I think about that, it's like, I want to know what he thinks of us here in Prince Albert. I want to know what he's saying to us. Hmm. Let's, let's just keep our ear to the ground on that one, to, to use the expression. I guess if we wanted to use the more biblical expression, we'd say, let's, let's have ears to hear what his, his Ruach is going to be saying to us. Yeah. Um, Yeshua finishes these letters, as I mentioned, on a very positive note with encouragement. He says, to him who overcomes, and then he gives a promise. He gives hope. He says, this is a look at what you could have. This is a look at what you could experience, not just in this life, but in the world to come, the Olam Haba. This life, it isn't all there is to it. And um, I, I, I want to break down that concept of overcoming for you. The Hebrew verb for overcoming is Natsach. Everybody say Natsach. It's spelled Nun, Tzadi, Chet. Natsach. Um, if you want to say an overcomer, you say Menatseach. Everybody say Menatseach. Yeah, Menatseach. Okay, that's an overcomer. Um, the verb Natsach, do you know what it means? It means to last. It means to endure. It means you're the last one left standing. It's actually one of the attributes of God. In, uh, in Jewish theology, Netzach is one of the attributes of God, and it means His eternality. It means He endures forever. Did you get that? What's the Jewish understanding of overcoming, of conquering, of winning? Endure. Last. Be the left one, last one standing. So think about that. The Jewish concept of winning is whoever is the last one left standing is the winner. Is that true? Yeah, it's, it's very true. Let, let's say in, um, in boxing or MMA or on a battlefield, the last one left standing, the army that is left standing is the winner because they endured. Now, let's look at some people throughout history that have hated the Jewish people, that have set themselves up in opposition to Israel, who have been anti-Semites. You think of the pharaohs, the long line of pharaohs who persecuted Am Yisrael. Um, you think of the kings of Assyria that brutalized uh, the people of Israel. You think of Haman who wanted to exterminate them. You think of the Nazi regime in more, in more current times. Where are all these guys today? Does anybody speak Babylonian or Assyrian anymore? Okay, there's some people that speak Aramaic, but Assyria, like, in that form, is gone. Babylon is gone. Egypt, Egyptian, the Egyptian language, is a relic. The Nazi regime was permanently dissolved. And its leaders either committed suicide, or disappeared, or were executed for their war crimes. Who's left standing? Israel is left standing. The Jewish people are still around. Do you know what that means? It means Israel wins. It means the Jewish people were overcomers. Um, there was, there was, a, there was a, a famous French king who uh, had some exposure to the concept of atheism, that God doesn't exist. This is a true story. And um, he was kind of wrestling with this. And he challenged one of his courtiers. He challenged his courtiers to prove to, them, prove to him that God exists. In two words. Prove to me that God exists in two words. And this is true. And, and um, one of his courtiers said, The Jews! That's the proof that God exists. The fact that the Jewish people are still around proves that God exists. So that's, okay, so that's the idea. So that's what Yeshua is saying here. He who overcomes. So you're going to make it. And you're not just going to pull through, you're going to win. And you're going to experience this stuff as you do so. So, you know, this is not a sprint. Discipleship Yeshua is not a sprint. It's a marathon. And we're going to run the race, and we're going to make it to the goal. And it's going to hurt. And we're going to sweat. But we're going to go there together. Let's, uh, let's, look at the, let's look at the parasha now for a couple of minutes here also. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff in these chapters, but I, hopefully that gives us kind of a, a feel for it, a general, a general overview. And now we can remember this, that Yeshua is the God who gave the Torah to His people Israel. So, 
the guy who is talking in these letters to these congregations in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, of these cities in, in what's now Turkey, it's the same guy talking in this parasha. It's the same guy communicating to his people Israel. Let's remember that. Sometimes we get this dichotomy in our brain. Let's remember that God is one. He is Echad. And it was through Mashiach, in his pre-incarnate form, the angel of the Lord, that the Torah was given to Israel. In um, Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 26, he says, Okay guys, I'm offering you on this side the bracha, the blessing. On this side, I'm offering you the curse, the klala. I thought you'd find it interesting what the Hebrew word for curse means. We discussed this when we talked about the mitzvah to not curse your parents. That's actually like a capital crime in, in the theocracy of God in the Torah. It's the word klala, and the root of it is kal or kalal, and it means to make light of. It's kind of interesting. The word for curse in Hebrew is to be made light of. What's the opposite of being made light of? Being weight, being taken seri- given weight, taken seriously, or honored. All right. So th- this is a huge thing in the Middle Middle Eastern culture, even today. In Arab countries, honor is supreme. Honor is preeminent. You do not dishonor a man. That's like the worst thing you could do to say something that would dishonor a fellow Arab, for instance. Oh, unspeakable. And uh, that's actually that's, that's true in the, in the, in the uh, ancient Hebrew culture also. Um, I think we've largely lost touch with the concept of honor in the Western world. Um, tabloids haven't helped. Really. I mean, like, dishonor is written all over our culture. It is embedded in the fabric of our culture. We th- don't think twice about dishonoring fellow believers even. Passing on stories, rumors, gossip, slander about them, even, you know, and we say, well, it's true. But that's not the point. The point is honor. So anyway, the, uh, God, God says here basically in Hebrew, like, dishonor is a curse. In um, 1127, he connects our actions, like doing his mitzvot, with experiencing his blessing, and this is this is a huge thing that I I feel we've overlooked largely in uh, in 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 the Yeshua movement in Christianity. We we uh, we've been so strong on justification by faith that I sometimes I think sometimes we don't separate justification from blessing. It's very possible to be justified by faith, to be positionally right with God, and to have eternal life, and to still experience a lot of curses, and not to live in the blessing of God because of poor choices on your part, because you're living in sin. That's understandable, okay? That's all the way back in the Torah. But sometimes we forget about that. And it's, 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 it's worth pointing out. Our actions matter. We do have consequences for whether we do the mitzvot or don't. I'll give you an example. God said in the Torah that He was going to bless us so that we would lend to many nations and we wouldn't borrow. In other words, He's saying, I'm going to bless you so that you have a financial surplus. So that you will not have a financial deficit. Now this is a national promise for Israel, but I believe it can also apply to us as individuals and families. Now, Let's say that this is the blessing that's offered to us, and let's say that we have this choice to make. And let's say that we go out and we get a whole line of credit, a bunch of credit cards, and we rack them all up and we max out our credit cards. Is that a good choice? Credit card debt is... It's never a good choice. It doesn't matter what, what trouble you're in or whatever dire straits you may be facing, credit card debt is not a good choice because the interest rates are massive and people who get sucked into credit card debt spend years and years and much toil and stress to pay it off. And what did, what did Paul say in Romans? Owe nothing to anyone. So I don't know, I'm not going to talk about mortgages necessarily, but just talking about credit card debt. We can infer from what Paul said in his instructions to the Yeshua believers in Rome, don't go into debt. Just, Credit card debt especially. Don't go into credit card debt, okay? So let's say someone makes a poor choice and they get into credit card debt. Are they going to experience the blessing of being on the trajectory towards having a financial surplus? Or are they placing themselves in a position to be the recipient of the curse of being in a financial deficit? <laughs> like, that's a no-brainer, right? That's a no-duh. But it's an example of how we make choices and we ignore what God has said in His Torah 
What would be another example? God said, Shabbat. Take Shabbat off. Don't work on Shabbat. If we ignore that, our family lives may suffer immensely. Our children may walk away from God because they see very little distinctives between us and the world around us. Because, um, man, even pastor's kids. Because dad just doesn't spend time with the kids. Etc., etc., etc. Okay, so, you know, that's a curse. And it comes because we don't do the mitzvot. That's not to say that trouble is always the direct result of sin. We know that, right? But sometimes it is. And it's something to take note of because I feel like that often is overlooked or forgotten. Um, In Deuteronomy chapter 12, in the beginning, uh, God says, you're going into Canaan. It's crammed with idolatrous garbage. There are Asherah poles. There are idols and, and altars to all manner of false gods with demonic entities behind them. Do you guys know what an Asherah pole is, by the way? Oh, there are tons of them in our culture. An Asherah pole is like a wooden pole that's carved in the image of a woman's body. Okay? It's like ancient porn, basically. That's an Asherah pole. Alright? So, you know that whole Asherah thing? It's still around. It's just a little more advanced than, like, um, really primitive art like that. And he's saying, guys, you're going into Canaan, and I want you to chop these poles down. I want you to smash those altars. I want you to obliterate the names of these demonic entities from the places where they're worshipped. And I don't want you to treat me like this. This is what he says. Now, let me ask you, all of that garbage in the land of Canaan, did that, was that just something that happened, or was that an expression of idolatrous hearts? It was an expression of idolatrous hearts. It's very important to note. Idolatry is something that comes from the heart. Um, do I have an idolatrous heart? No, um, I don't really have a little altar out back. You know, it's, it's not like I have a, a little closet with a little, a little, a little God in the closet just in case this deal with the God of Israel doesn't work out. I have another God to fall back on. I don't really have that, but I do. I have an idolatrous heart. Um, I think it's human nature. I think, it's, I, think it's the, I think it might be the fountainhead of so much sin. Um, what would be, uh, I'll give you an example in, like, uh, in human relationships. Um, in my relationship with Genevieve in our marriage, I feel like everything is trying to take me away from making her, giving her first place in my life. Um, like reserving my emotional energy for her. Everything. You know, sometimes you'll have a, cri- a, re- a crisis with somebody... Um, and there's just a big fire you have to put out. Or, uh, I don't know, where like there's just, work is piling up and you have, you have like four to-do lists and it's just, it's easy to get sidetracked and to just focus on work, you know? And, and, and I like to think of idolatry in my marriage because it helps me to understand idolatry in my marriage with God. Basically, idolatry is like stuff that takes us away from Him being first place, from Him being the one. And man, I, I fight that. Like, for me... I, I sometimes have an idolatrous relationship with my to-do lists. Because I just get hung up on like, hey, check, 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 I have all this stuff I have to do, and I'll get up in the morning, and it'll be the first thing on my mind, and I'll start running around in my day, and I won't even like, kiss my wife and say hi, almost. And that's, that's idolatry in my marriage, you know, to, use, to use the analogy. And man, I just wonder, do we ever do that to our Creator, who's standing there and loves to engage with us and spend quality time? Oh, man, lots. I mean, that's just one example. There's a broader definition for idolatry, right? But when you think about it like that, idolatry is still alive and well, and it's still a big problem. Um, It's actually really helpful to understand addictions in the context of idolatry, uh, whether it be an addiction to food, or to pornography, or to alcohol, or to gambling. These things actually, these things are idols. It's like, who is the first person that I run to? What is it that I go for? Is it Yeshua? If not, maybe that's an idol. And uh, this is what I really love. I really love that Yeshua came to fulfill the Torah. So all this stuff about getting rid of idolatry, that's Yeshua's job description. He came on a mission not just to obliterate the idols on planet Earth. He came to uproot that stuff from my heart. So, you know, that's an example of how we can see the gospel plastered across the Torah. And uh, that's, good. that's good news. So, I guarantee you, 
if you're staying tight with the Holy One, if, you know, if you're sensitive to His Holy Spirit, He's going to convict you at times. He's going to put His finger on an area of your heart and say, are you sure that I'm first or is this first? When you're, just, when you're down or you're having a crisis, why aren't you running to me first? When you're sick, why are you running for your medicine cabinet before talking to me and calling up the elders to, ha- to ask for prayer? Idolatry. And Yeshua came to save us from it. And, to, and not just to like reform our behavior, to give us new hearts. And I thank Him for that. I thank Him for that. Um, here's another way of looking at this passage. This was our mission. As an early Yeshua movement emerging from the land of Israel, preaching the gospel to the nations. It wasn't just going into Canaan and getting rid of the stuff. It was like Yeshua said, go into all the world and do this. Like, Declare war and idolatry. Bring the nations to the one true God. And it's kind of scary because in the process, we ended up assimilating a lot of these practices from the nations, stuff that have suspect origins in paganism, so that today, it's just part of church tradition. It's just part of what we do and we think it's for God. But you know, God says in Deuteronomy, don't do this stuff for me. Don't even pretend it's for me. Something to remember. Um... In Deuteronomy 12, 8 and 9, he says, Guys, don't do what you're doing here today. Everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. It's because you haven't yet come to the resting place and the inheritance which Yahweh your God is giving you. This is a word for Messianic Judaism, for the Hebrew roots movement. The fact that we have such a divergence of opinions, the fact that there's debate about so many major things, that it, it, to some degree we're all kind of doing what we think is right. I'm not going to condemn that, but what I will say is, Let's just take it to heart that we haven't arrived yet. The idea is we haven't arrived, so let's not get smug, let's not get complacent, let's keep pressing in, let's keep crying out to Yeshua to restore us as a people, to institute the kingdom of God in our midst, to raise up real apostles and prophets that hopefully will give us a greater level of unity and theological coherence and and halachic agreement. That's the idea. It's too easy to just sit back and criticize and say, man, you know, that Messianic congregation, they, they've, just, they've got issues. You know, they just can't agree about this, and I see so much dis, disunity in the Messianic movement. You know, the Messiantics, I'm sure you've all heard that phrase, it's pretty popular. It's not Messianic, it's Messiantics. And you know, it's easy to look at that and criticize. But our response should be to pray that Yeshua will lead us as a movement, that He will restore us as a people, and that He will raise up apostles and prophets. Seriously. Like, I'm really looking forward to seeing some guys begin to do the stuff that Yeshua's apostles did, like raising people from the dead. When I see Messianic Jewish teaching organizations or Hebrew Roots guys begin to raise people from the dead, I'm going to take note of that. I'm going to take those guys pretty seriously. And I believe that when that begins happening, we're going to have a greater level of unity in, uh, in our movement. So uh, I, I'm looking forward to that. That's a practical application we get from, uh, from these verses. One of the major themes in this parsha is rejoicing. He says it over and over again. Like, bring your stuff to Jerusalem and rejoice! Celebrate! He says it specifically for Shavuot, the festival of weeks, and for Sukkot, the festival of booths. I just, I really like it that God loves it when we come together and we rejoice, we celebrate. Maybe we're going through hard times, we might be in pain, struggling. We can still rejoice. And we can pull each other along in that regard. Um, a couple things here. I'll skip over a couple things and give you the highlights. And this, this hit me. I've never, I've never thought about this before. Deuteronomy 14.22. God says, um, Tithe, which means like cutting a tenth of all the produce from what you sow, which comes out of the field every year. So that's an agricultural practice. Okay, here it is. In verse 23, he says, Why? To do this, he says, So that you may learn to fear Yahweh your God always. I just thought that's cool, you know? If, if, if we're in, in, engaged in agriculture, let's say in Israel, the concept of, of dedicating the first fruits, giving him the tenth of the crop, it says there's a reason. This is so you can learn to fear Yahweh your God always. And the Hebrew concept there for fear doesn't necessarily mean be terrified of, like I'm afraid. It has to do with who you respect. 
So if I'm a farmer in Israel, giving him the best of my crops in that tenth, that says, I respect you. That's powerful. Uh, similarly, you know, if, uh, if we have income and we cut that tenth of our income and we dedicate it to him and uh, to the service of his kingdom, we're learning through the process of allocating our finances to him and budgeting in such a manner that we can honor him through our finances. We're learning to fear him. So that's huge. Basically, on a practical level, what that says is, what I do with my money says who I respect. So if I cut God that tenth of the income, it's saying I respect him. And if not, that says something too. Yeah. In um, 14, 24 to 27, this, this, this bears mentioning... Um, I, ha- I have a friend on Facebook. I, I think he's, he's a pretty staunch fundamentalist Christian. I think, I think he's a cessationist, like, like that type of fundamentalist Christian. And um, he, 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 he messaged me to say, he was trying to figure this out. So he was like, okay, so when is the grape harvest? And then when is Passover and all this? So you know, I said, well, basically the grape harvest is in the fall. And then Passover is in the spring. And he said, how do the people of Israel do that? How do they keep their grapes and the grape juice all the way from September, October to like February, March, April without it fermenting? I was like, ah, they don't? And he was like, well, isn't alcohol consumption bad? Isn't that against the laws of God? And so I took him to this, this chapter and I pointed it out to him. And I don't know if he'd ever, ever actually encountered this before, but I wanted to point that out because... Um, because it's probably an example of how we in the Christian world have sometimes added to the Word of God in addition to taking away from it. In Deuteronomy 14, 24 to 27, he says, okay, so you know, if, if you just live too far from Jerusalem and you can't haul the tenth of your crop up to Jerusalem and all of your tithe, then um, sell it, cash it in, and then take the money up to Jerusalem. And, uh, and then spend it for whatever you want. Uh, steaks, wine, and strong drink, whatever your heart desires. And eat it there in God's presence. And rejoice. Have a celebration. You and your, you and your family. Isn't that the coolest commandment in the Bible? I mean, I, I love that. But you'll notice there it says wine, and then it has the word strong drink. Uh, the word there is shechar. Everybody say shechar. It's, it's from the verbal root to become intoxicated or inebriated, Okay. It doesn't mean that that has to happen, but the idea is this is something that does have a pretty... It has clout, alcoholic clout to it. It has the capacity to render you drunk if you abuse it. Is he encouraging people to abuse alcohol? No. We know very clearly from Paul that we're not to do that. You never drink to the point of being drunk. It's wrong. It's a sin. But you'll notice here God says, I want you to do this. I want you to celebrate in my presence, like in a holy context, so I want you to buy like some really nice choice cuts of meat. Get yourself some wine and some strong drink if you want it. And um, have a celebration with your family at the temple. And uh, I, I feel like this is something we've really lost touch with sometimes in, in the Christian world. The idea of celebrating, of having a joyous party with the family in a holy parameters. Uh, I, I'm going to give you an example. Um, okay, so some of us have wine for Passover. And for some of us, that's a big step. You know, maybe you were in a Christian context where you didn't have alcohol for years. And, and that's cool. I mean, part of my family background is Southern Baptist. We never drank alcohol in my family during our Southern Baptist years. All right? So, you know, and um, I don't know that I'm any the worse for it, actually. I mean, I'm still a pretty happy person. I don't feel like I was too deprived or whatever. But, um, you know, we, uh, we, we now in... in in, um, in our Jewish tradition, we'll have wine in holy parameters, like on Erev Shabbat for, you know, the Tashur and the Sabbath or for Passover. And uh, I, just, I, I offer this thought to you that it's a privilege. And it's, actually, it's a very holy thing. And sometimes we have a human tendency to approach alcohol in a juvenile manner. And I don't mean abusing it. I mean making little jokes. Have you, I know, maybe you've encountered that. I've done it at times, okay? I confess. I've done it at times. It's like, let's say you're having glasses for Passover, and let's say that someone accidentally bumps their cup or whatever, and immediately we all get tittery, and we're like, ooh, four cups? Looks like maybe you had a little too much, right? I mean, we do that. And, and sometimes I, I question. I question if that's mature, and I question if that's a biblical approach to the consumption of alcohol. 
So here's, here's, here's a thought I'd offer to you. Even though, like, let, let's, let, I don't know, let's not do that. You know, let's, let's, let's approach alcohol in a mature manner. Let's not joke about getting drunk, ever. Let's not joke, joke about even getting a little bit tipsy. Because it's, I don't know, it's just, I don't know, it's not funny. And I, I, it's, it's too close to, like, I don't know, looking at stuff, like, um, I don't know how to phrase that. But I just feel like it's getting too close to something that's not healthy. So, and especially, like, you know, because we're a Messianic Jewish community, and we do have wine, for instance, for special events, we want to be careful not to cause people to stumble. We want to maintain, we want to be above reproach. We want to have a blameless reputation with the broader, broader body of Christ in the city. I think it's another reason we want to be really careful to approach it in a mature manner, and not in a light way, or in a joking way. So, um, enough said about that, I reckon. Um, in Deuteronomy 16.1, God says, Shemor at Chodesh Aviv, He says to observe the month of Aviv. The word there means to guard, it means to carefully guard. Usually God says that because we have a tendency to not guard something. And uh, that's why, I, I, you know, in our congregation, we uh, believe in reckoning the calendar from how it was done in Yeshua's time by the Jewish world. It's the way the Sanhedrin is working right now to restore it to, because the way the month of Aviv is calculated today in uh, the calendar that's sometimes called the rabbinic calendar or the fixed calendar that was brought in in the 300s, it's different. So sometimes I, I, I have a concern. I have a concern that we, as the Jewish people, have failed to guard the month of Aviv in, in changing things and fixing calendars, etc. So again, that, that's, that's not a big issue. That's a lesser thing. But it's something in my mind and it, it, it's part of why sometimes we are a couple of days off from the, uh, the traditional Jewish calendar. Let's, uh, let's finish with this thought. In Deuteronomy 16.11, okay, you know how we're, like, we're, we're coming back to the Moedim, the appointed times of God, we're celebrating the festivals, and we're passionate even about doing it on the right days and stuff, right? That's something that matters to us as a community. It's part of our values. Um, I feel like the, the, half, the half of it that we haven't been in touch with as much, and for good reason, is the, 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 this. Moed doesn't just mean appointed time, it means appointed place. So the Moedim aren't just an appointment in time that you mark off on your calendar. The Moedim are actually somewhere that you go. Uh, we read in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 11, God says to rejoice for, like, for the festival of weeks, Shavuot, in the place, where is it, 1611? Where Yahweh or God chooses to establish His name. Where is that? Jerusalem, right? No brainer. Um, so that's what he says about Shavuot. It's, it's, it's interesting. He doesn't just say do Shavuot. He says, go to Jerusalem for Shavuot. Um, 1615, he says to do that for Sukkot also. And then in 1616, he says there are three times in the year, the Hebrew is Shalosh Regalim, where all the males are to appear before the Master Yahweh in Jerusalem for Passover, for weeks, and for booths. And, uh, okay, obviously we can't do that, right? It's just physically impossible. But it's something to note that um, we're still in the process of restoration. And half of the festivals are about meeting with God in time. The other half are about meeting with Him in space. There's a geographical location where He said His name. So let's remember that. As we're in the diaspora, we are not ultimately Canada-centric. We're Israel-centric. So, you know, we pray passionately for Prince Albert. We want to see this city impacted for the gospel. But we're also passionate for Jerusalem. And we remember Jerusalem when we have a Moed and we have to be here. It's not our first choice, right? Jerusalem's our first choice, but sometimes it just doesn't happen. So, let's, let's just remember that too. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham. And thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.